It's been a couple weeks, a couple great shows we've done on our own, but uh, definitely happy to be back here live on WERA tonight. Um, look, we're back on this topic about divisiveness and, and really this sort of almost culture and spirit of almost ignorance today in this country where it just seems like, uh, you know, we're at each other's throats, that there's so much, you know, distrust among various groups of people. And, and it's a sad time to be sure. I, I think, you know, we look back at the greatest generation, how they, you know, came out of World War II and, and learned to work together uh, from their experiences there and broke down barriers. So, you know, look, tonight we're going to talk about you know, uh, a great topic here. We're going to look at the the, the similarities uh, in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And, you know, there are people today who are taking advantage, I think, of trying to create strife in these areas. You know, today's guests were joined by an expert in this area, uh, you know, believes that educating, uh, you know, people on the shared origins, the values of these religions, you know, is going to lead towards more peace. And he's seen this. He's had an incredible career hands-on experience in the Middle East um, where Muslims, Christians, Jews, you know, work together, remove this ignorance. And uh, we're going to talk about that tonight, so I'm pretty psyched. So we're welcoming uh, Joseph Montville, who's a, a director at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. He's had a long and distinguished career, including serving 23 years as a diplomat with posts in the Middle East and North Africa. He's been, had faculty appointments at the Harvard and University of Virginia Medical Schools and he has served as chief of the State Department's Near East Division and the director of the Office of Global Issues. Among other things, he hopes to use the concept of healing historical memory to promote race reconciliation in Virginia and the U.S., which is something that we hope to touch on during our chat. So, Joe, welcome to Grace in 30. Um, I'm very happy to be here and honored, really. Yeah, we're honored to have you. I definitely uh, appreciate your time here as an expert in the area. So, yeah, this is great. So maybe the good place to start here is sort of describing some of the insights that you've gained into the use of shared origins and values uh, of religion to promote peace and dialogue. Well, my mother conflict is the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I've been working on it since I started in graduate school in 1959. And um, it's, it's very hard to avoid the impact of religious identity, uh, religious uh, values, and religious uh, memories and prejudices. Uh, so it, uh, and, and after, uh, I mean, it, it became more and more clear empirically when I was in the field as a political analyst and a political reporter, and then the State Department as a uh, supervising intelligence analysis, that uh, religion and religious identities and memory uh, and competition and, and, and wounds, of historical wounds, were, were major features, but that um, the, the traditional international relations programs at the Fletcher School or uh, Georgetown, uh, ironically, and, and, and other places, uh, and in the tradition of post-Enlightenment conceit, where religion was just going to disappear, uh, it didn't disappear, but it, the, this conceit did dominate the academic preparation of, uh, of, of students, the PhDs, and also people going into the public service. So uh, I became, just as a matter of, of, uh, of reality, very much involved in studying Islam uh, and Judaism and the psychology of Judaism and the and the experience of Jews in Europe uh, under Christian 
uh, domination and all the impact on their the psychology and how that affected the creation of modern Zionism and the state of Israel and a lot more after that. Mm, you bring up a good point. I mean, in the 60s, God was dead, <clears throat> but now, look, uh, you know, uh, almost everything we talk about in this area really deals with these three religions. And to your credit, you know, you, you kept on the path of trying to understand these where very few people even understand their own faith. Yeah. So, so maybe give us just a, a quick summary of your, your bio, uh, your personal experiences, maybe highlight some of the things that most profoundly taught you and affected you in this area. Well, I've often thought about uh, my motivation. I, I, I did have this, what, what Jews would call tikkun olam, the healing the world, but I didn't know the phrase when I got into it, it but I felt it kind of a calling. Um, and, uh, but in my experience in the diplomatic service, um, I lost a lot of colleagues who were killed in the line of duty. And um, uh, somehow the, the, the presence of death the sacrifice and death was just growing and becoming more and more motivating to me to find solutions that weren't part of traditional diplomacy. And in, in many cases, traditional diplomacy only contributed to the, uh, the death toll. So uh, I looked beyond the tr traditions and uh, actually went out to Esalen Institute in 1980 uh, with the permission of my supervisors in the State Department to uh, to a conference, a, a brainstorming conference on the U.S.-Soviet relationship at a time when there's a lot of anxiety about uh, the potential of nuclear war. It was after the Soviet in invasion of Afghanistan and the Carter administration cut off uh, cultural and uh, other relations with the Soviets because we didn't know what else to do. And um, at that meeting, uh, I was asked to, to say, why did I come out uh, and beyond the beauty of the Pacific Ocean and Esalen and, and the, the hot tubs, I said that I suppose what you have been doing in your informal uh, contacts with Soviets uh, leading up to the meeting uh, could be called uh, track two diplomacy and what I've been doing and do continue to do is track one diplomacy. And that's how the concept of track two came into the uh, consciousness of people. It, it's, it, since I was from the State Department, just mentioning that the, the, the fact that citizen initiatives and citizen diplomacy could be very valuable in peace building, um, it, it's, it's as though totally without authorization, the Department of State was authorizing all of these citizen initiatives. And so maybe define track two. Diplomacy. Well, it's just unofficial, informal interaction between representatives of groups in conflict. The, the, the best known characteristic are the, the problem-solving workshops, dialogues, workshops. Uh, there's a case in uh, a colleague of mine who was a former assistant secretary of state who I c kind of recruited, Harold Saunders, uh, into this field after he retired. He had about 67 dialogue sessions between Tajikistan government and opposition people that actually fed into a formal track one negotiation sponsored by the UN. Um, so, uh, but I also believe that uh, we have to work uh, on uh, looking at, say, religion and history and memory, or broad ways of if, um, influencing broad public opinion, which can't be uh, accessed in these small workshops. Uh, and in fact, the Oslo agreements uh, between um, the Israel, Israelis and the Palestinians 
are believed to, in, in, in a very significant way, failed because uh, while they, they succeeded at the elite level of negotiation, there was no attempt to shape public opinion and create public opinion that would make the agreements uh, sustained. So this was some of the early, you know, before this term was probably even used, sort of grassroots movements, right? Before social media, before, you know, television was everywhere and Sky TV, you know, this was an attempt to go from the bottom up and the top down and really manage that. You know, and this gets back to some of the talks, you know, books like Tipping Point, where it doesn't take a lot of people. It takes a certain type of people. And then all of a sudden word spreads from, you know, community to community, from New York state to state. And all of a sudden you see this incredible change and, and people go back and look at this in a number of sort of consumer or individual items and they say, oh, was this some big message from above? And no, it wasn't. It was maybe 30 people, but they were the right people and they were connected and sort of the whole process of managing that, you know, back in, in back when you're talking about was was quite an art because you didn't have all these other forms. Look, I, I want to ask you, you just, in fact, you talked about one of these, but you just got back from a trip to Ghana uh, visiting a good friend of mine, uh, Father Clem. And uh, actually, he baptized my son, Gabriel. Hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that and what's going on in Ghana. Because we know from, from our, our guest, Tim Sample, there's elections coming up. Uh, they've got this Peace Center initiative. Again, kind of back to your old storybook of you know mm-hmm. local grassroots, small communities making a difference. Tell yeah. us a little bit about, about that. Well, I'm, uh, I've been a, an, associ- an adjunct professor at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason uh, for several years, and I forgot who took the initiative, but I uh, I volunteered to give uh, Father Clem a tutorial at my my home in McLean, and um, it was very uh, gratifying because he's a tra- charming person. Oh yeah, um, and uh, he's a, a Catholic priest with with a very broad-minded approach towards um, religion, or and including Catholicism. I, our our tutorial was discussing the the pluses and minuses of the Book of Revelation, and uh, I was kind of against it, <laughs> and uh, n- noted that Martin Luther, when he was deciding to um, w- uh, publish his German version of the Bible, thought very seriously about leaving it out of the Bible. But toward the end, he left it in. But what's uh, going on there? I mean, what what are well, they what, they, what, what are they up to right now? He was uh, Clement got his PhD at Escar, as we affectionately call it, and he was asked by his bishop to set up a peace program in Ghana, where he could bring his technology, what he learned about the art and science of dialogue and and community building, uh, to be used to to help po- politics in Ghana be. Um, Nonviolent and cr- and creative, and that's what this uh, religious summit that he organized with Tim Sample uh, was all about: bringing about 50 people, Ghanaians, um, Muslims and Christians, young and older, uh, to start uh, building relationships in in plenary meetings. And uh, I had an opportunity to present on my my work on shared values in the Abrahamic faith. But they also broke down into small working groups that were actually plotters uh, to find ways that they, as citizens, could um, uh, intervene in in the political environment. And what do you think makes these small groups? I mean, small groups can go one way or another. I mean, what, what in your experience, makes these, especially you talked about you've got three religions in the room there in Ghana. What what makes these small groups work? I mean, what, what makes this work in general? 
My conclusion, I, I sat in on uh, small groups, was that the Ghanaians are just very nice people. And I told them that, and when I told them that, they applauded. <laughs> um, uh, they, there have been manipulations, political manipulations, to set the Muslims versus the Christians. There's a real shortage of Jews there, so we're talking about the, the two, two traditions. Right. But uh, I promote the concept of the Abrahamic family and the Abrahamic family reunion, and it wasn't, uh, it didn't take more than a half day for them to start feeding that back in their, their discussions. And define that for us. Well, the Abrahamic family is basically it's a, it's symbolically based on the, uh, the the biblical story of Ishmael and Isaac reuniting the, the two alienated brothers coming back together to bury their uh, their father Abraham uh, in in uh, Hebron. Um, there's a lot of I'm a political psychologist and symbolism is very important in in my work and my planning. Mm. Um, that these two brothers were alienated and came back to bury their father has a tremendous amount of emotional uh, impact. And um, the fact is that uh, there is a lot in the traditions, and the, the paper I left with them, which was just published this, uh, uh, this summer, um, seemed, to, seemed to give them the basis in sacred literature to be good people and to, to collaborate as good Ghanaians, Muslims and Christians, to put pressure on the politicians to run a clean campaign. And, uh, and much of the discussion was on uh, certain p political techniques like uh, you know, telephone and, uh, and peace marches and other ways of focusing pu pu uh, public opinion and public pressure on the politicians to keep them straight. I actually a asked, I expressed the wish that if it was possible for some of them to come back to America to help us with our presidential election. So, so instead of focusing on division, like the difference, the two religions, one <coughs> feels that Isaac is, is key and the other is Ishmael is favored. Yeah. Instead of focusing on that dispute, you're focusing on, here's a story where they came together mm -hmm. to bury their father and, and sort of using that to propel those discussions? Yes. I didn't, you know, I didn't spend too much time on it. They, they didn't need too much persuasion. Um, uh, and then that's what I thought the in, innate uh, decency of the Ghanaians and in their relationships was a real asset in the success of this conference. I mean, how do we make little steps in this country, in this area? It just seems like we, you, you mentioned it, I, I saw a YouTube video you did several years ago where you said, you know, there were certain statements that just became ingrained in people's minds that created, you know, feelings of resentment, of hate. And yet, how do we, maybe through these small groups, start breaking some of this down? Because I, I tell you, I work closely with a lot of people of different faiths. Uh, you know, I've been in a Jewish wedding. I was a groomsman in a Jewish wedding. I, I've never had this problem, and yet it's so pervasive in this country. Because of events, we, we have to recognize that. But at the same time, how do, how do we start, in, maybe in, the, in your formula, m even just here in Arlington County, trying to, uh, trying to work this the other direction? Well, I've got uh, uh, on the drawing board... Uh, a project, uh, a, a modest pro project of healing the wounds from the Civil War, north, south, black, and white. Uh, I think it's very clear that our our, our politics and our the federal government have been really paralyzed uh, uh, congressionally, um, and I and I believe from my study that there is a, a maybe 30 30 percent of the population that is cannot handle the idea that we have a black president. 
and that he's been elected twice, and he has a black wife and two black daughters in the White House. And um, but but there's a lot that uh, behind behind that kind of prejudice too. Like for, for instance, the um, the North, and that's my culture. Um, never really has acknowledged the tragedy of the losses of the South, of the um, non-slave-owning uh, um, foot soldiers in the Confederate Confederacy. And, um, and so I've been studying that and expressions of that. Uh, when I, what I would want to do at, uh, at Point of View, which is the, the, the school, George Mason School's uh, residential re- conference center, uh, is to start a dialogue, put, uh, uh, do a three-year program, and maybe um, every, every three months uh, meeting for three days, representatives who were very thoughtful about the North and the South and um, are sensitive to the needs. Uh, that's a very a critical part uh, of people to be heard. And I've already met some fascinating uh, people, Confederates I call them, but... Um, who are very, very excited about the possibility of being heard. Yeah, this is interesting because, you know, we we keep looking for answers <coughs> today, but a lot of these are, I don't want to call them hidden clues, but, yeah. you know, you talked about uh, specializing in symbology and things like that, and, and I can see where you're going with this because, you know, today there's a lot of resentment about people flying the Confederate flag. Right. Let's just yeah. put it out there. And, and and this here in Virginia, I mean, you know, we, we this is this is a part of our history. It's also controversial. But at the same time, what you're talking about is we haven't even broken down these issues. And you see that in the media all the time. And it really just dawned on me, you know, what, what you're saying is we can go back through history and maybe change some of these symbologies and change some of this context and bring this forward again, uh, just as you talked about in the Bible, but also just in, in issues that exist today by going back and looking how we got here. Well, my program at ESCAR uh, is called the Program on Healing Historical Memory. Uh, that's a very uh, uh, a provocative title because uh, uh, it, it's meant to be provocative, uh, to recognize that we have to find out from people who are angry and resentful where it hurts right. and uh, invite uh, those who are representatives or descendants of those who inflicted wounds to listen carefully and respectfully and at some point uh, acknowledge the losses. I'll give you a quick uh, anecdote. A, a black woman, a minister from Richmond, uh, uh, became uh, became a good friend of uh, the, a woman who was the head of the Confederate Daughters of the Confederacy, and went up to um, Minnesota uh, with a, the a, a representative of the Sons of the Confederacy in Virginia to ask Jesse Ventura, then the governor, the wrestler. Uh, if they could have the Confederate flag back that that the uh, Minnesota regiment captured. Now, these flags were carried by teenagers. They weren't armed. And for for Joy Chargeois, the, the woman, it's very, very moving on her part to f- go in solidarity with a, a, a representative of the Confederate Confederacy to simply ask ba- for that uh, flag that had a lot of symbolism. And uh, f- from what I understand, Jesse Ventura said, hell no, uh, we want it fair and square, have a nice trip back home. So that didn't help with the healing process one no. damn bit. But, um, but that's really the kind of sort of initiative that uh, uh, can have a lot of psychological impact on public opinion. 
I, also, I, I want to mention, you said the word listen. I mean, I, I just we don't listen to each other, no. and, and we don't want to listen to mm-hmm. each other. I, you know, I'm in a Bible study group on Tuesdays periodically, um, and, and there's the gentleman running the group, a pastor, one day after the, some of the shootings that occurred recently, he just said, he said, we have a couple African-American gentlemen in the group, and he said, we, we, we just want to listen to you. We want you to tell us what it's like to be black in America. Yeah. And, and it, it was so powerful and moving and had such an effect on the group. And it's just, it, it sounds like such a simple thing, but no one teaches us how to listen. Well, you've just taught them by telling them the story. And I hope, um, you know, I, I, I'm, that's what I, I've, I've written and published on this whole issue of healing history and the burdens of history and how they get passed from generation to generation unless there is a real healing process. Yeah, and, you know, we, it's, it's interesting to hear you, Joe, because I, I think, you know, the more educated we've gotten, we think, oh, we'll just, we'll just sort of phase out of these things, right? Mm-hmm. We'll become yeah. smarter that, and somehow and, – and actually the exact opposite has come back. Even as we look back in the 60s, you know, God is dead, and, and so you know, we'll, just, we'll just sort of phase him out. Today, what are the biggest issues in, this, in the world, hmm. right? Because we've kind of ignored this. We never really healed these things. We just said intellectually, we'll kind of phase it out, and instead we, we've ended up with the situation we have today. And the same thing is true in race relations in this country. We never really have gone back. I know people have, but, you know, as a country, we've never really been able to go back and deal with this. And so, you know, it's not phasing out. It's gotten far, far worse. Let me ask you, you know, of all these experiences, I mean, you were involved, you know, you were in Northern Ireland or in, you know, involved in some of the peace accords there that were happened here in the U.S. You, you've been deep in the Israeli-Palestine. You've been in the Middle East. What, what of these er- other areas do you see this approach you have that, that you'd like to apply it to or, or, or something that, you know, in these areas you'd like to comment on? Uh, well, the, the political psychology tells me that the, the dynamics of ethnic and sectarian conflicts, uh, you know, na- national or religious conflicts, are, are universal. All tribes and nations have the same kind of memory and history. And so the process works for all of them. I, mean, uh, uh, I have not been a, a, a West African specialist, but it was very easy to move into the northern Ghana, uh, in the northern ca- 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 capital of the northern region, and start talking about team building and, and healing history. And uh, uh, you know, th- th- people respond to it. As uh, uh, as it said, you know, it, it's it's not rocket science. Just to say, you know, tell us about, tell us where it hurts. What are your feelings? And listen respectfully, and then respond with compassion. And is there any age limit on this group? I mean, it, you know, again, people always say, you know, well, geez, the college kids will, you know, they'll they're not like their parents. They're again, they'll sort of phase it out. They'll be more educated. But I don't think that's true because we we've, yeah. we've been through this couple generations now. Uh, you know, wh- where would you start? Would you start at, uh, you know, the, the families or, or, you know, the college level? Or, you know, if we were going to do a program like this at, at, uh, in the Northern Virginia area, where, where would you kind of take a stab at it? Well, I'll give an example of, of, of an application of this in, in the Israel-Palestine uh, relationship. I, I was an advisor to a project uh, developed by some uh, p- political psychologists, Israeli and Palestinian and historians and high school teachers who developed a textbook of the narration of each side, the Palestinian side and the Israeli side, leading up to the creation of the, uh, the State of Israel. And uh, it was focused on uh, 16-year-olds. And the idea was to try to introduce it into the curriculum uh, in both education ministries and the PLO, or the Palestinian Authority. Uh, 
And we discovered something that I, it was not a surprise to me that noth- nothing, nobody is more jealous about what gets into the curriculum than ministries of education. In a way, that's the way the government controls the narrative. And, and this project was designed to give at least some perspective on each other's narratives. And the, the book that they produced had blank spaces with, uh, in between for the, for the classrooms to do their own uh, reaction to what each side ble- believed were session, essentially the narrative. Now, that sort of thing can be done uh, in, in Arlington and Fairfax and, uh, uh, and you know, all, all over Virginia. It's a way of learning, of walking through history. Chicago, Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and is there a certain amount of openness in this? I mean, I, you know, I, I remember in my 20s, I, I, or maybe I was 30, I, I got to go and, and live and work in a, in a strict Muslim country and realized, you know, the beauty uh, of watching people pray three times a day. And realizing, wow, you know, if, if we in this country would just, you know, before or after we came out of a meeting thought, you know, you know, forgive me for, you know, being a complete yeah. jerk and idiot in this meeting or, you know, let me be a humble person in this upcoming thing and dealing with someone in a difficult complex. And yet these folks, when, you know, when I was in Malaysia, they, they, you know, in the office, they prayed three times a day. And that was a big eye opener for me. Is it accessibility? You know, I, I have never been in a mosque in this country. I, I don't know that there's sort of open houses. I don't know that. That, that Catholics or, or Christians have sort of open houses for other faiths to come in and just see what it's like. I mean, that, when I was in Malaysia, I actually, you know, with, with my Muslim co- friends, visited a couple mosques, and it was a huge eye-opener. You know, yeah. We just don't have that. Oh, actually, they were playing, praying five times a day. You, <laughs> you missed the wake-up and the go-to-bed prayer. Yeah, I, I, so, I'm a late riser, and I go to bed early. <laughs> yeah. We're embarrassed to pray once a day here. Right? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, in yeah. public. Right. So I, I want to... Stop us for just a moment because we're this show's too short. We need to go to sixty minutes, but uh, we've got about four minutes. So I want to make sure we do uh, let you issue a call to action to our li- listeners. I know there's some things you want them to, I want to challenge them to think about, and some of the plans that you have and you'd like to share. So, well, I've had I had a, a very good uh, conversation with uh, Congressman Don Byer about how to bring this healing approach uh, through. George Mason and the School for Conflict Analysis and, and Re- Resolution, especially the point of view campus, 120 acres uh, south of um, uh, uh, Mount Vernon, where we'll be able to work uh, when we're fully funded uh, three, 365 days a year doing this kind of dialogue work, listening and, and healing history. Um, and, uh, and uh, Don and his staff were particularly interested in the idea of recruiting Virginians, Virginia philanthropists who would really like to invest in healing the history given the leading role of Virginia in the Confederacy. And uh, not only in producing our, our first uh, founding fathers, but it, uh, with Richmond being the capital of the Confederacy. It's a way that Virginia could really um, take a major role with northern, you know, with, with the Yankee p- partners in walking through history together and taking responsibility wherever the, di- the discussion brings us uh, from honest people who are telling, who are speaking there from their hearts. And uh, I th- I'd love to do it. And I think George Mason, I tell people we're only five metro stops from the White House and four from the State Department at our school for conflict analysis and resolution. And I think we should establish ourselves as a permanent institution for healing our own history as well as helping other countries with their own. And what about on an individual level? I mean, we've talked about, 
you know, understanding shared values and common origins. We've talked about um, listening and removing ignorance. This is something I wanted mm-hmm. to get to as well. I mean, what the, the problems that ignorance causes because so few yeah. Muslims and Christians really understand their own religions yeah. and people can exploit that. What would you challenge the listeners to do? Well, um, uh, study is important, but I've been working on uh, and, and publishing uh, some of the re- responses of our um, uh, our practical applications of real, you know, with real people in conflict. And the, a certain uh, process has evolved, and it's not rocket science. Just provide people with a chance to, uh, a safe chance to listen to each other and learn and c- continue it as long as it's necessary. I was, I was thinking in terms of three-year uh, projects and renewable as necessary. Um, uh, but uh, people are re- responsive if, if the environment is right and the third party, the facilitator, really knows what he or she's doing in the team. Yeah, this just seems right on. I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, and, and certainly if we can help, uh, you know, listeners in, in advocating to uh, Congressman Byer to keep pushing this initiative forward, we'd, we'd love to help you. Um, look, it's, Joe, yeah, I learned a lot. You opened my eyes. This was a great show. We, we want to have you back, uh, maybe as an expert. Maybe you can keep bringing us some good stories from the field on this. For listeners who want to find more, uh, more information about the George Mason Center for Conflict Analysis and, and Resolution, please visit uh, scar.gmu.edu website. We'll be posting information on Facebook, Twitter, and at our Grayson30 website, grayson30.com. Uh, a recorded show of this will be found on WERA's website 24 hours after the show. Ed, uh, who we got on tap next week, man? Uh, next week we hear from Sally O'Dwyer from Catholic Charities. This is an organization that has many, many volunteers doing great work around the, the D.C. area and beyond. Uh, running out of time, this is uh, Ed and Sal signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great day and be sure to tune into Grace. Tune into Grace.